to Luke chapter 10 this morning. I'm going to look at the first 20 verses. And uh, before we start, uh, have you take a look at a uh, video from CNN about um, what took place last week down in Texas. Um, you're going to see a video of uh, some people rescuing uh, a man who was stranded in his car out in the waters, um, and I'm trying to help him get, get uh, to safety. Take a look. A group of people forming a human chain on the interstate to try and rescue an elderly man who was being swept away by the floodwaters in his car. Wow, isn't that something? The person who actually took that video, Maritza Castillo, uh, told CNN the man was taken to a local hospital and reunited with his son. I love that last picture. Picks him up and carries him to safety. I want you to... Um, I want you to reverse what you just saw in your mind. Here's what I mean. I want you to imagine that out in the water there were 16 stranded motorists and only one person helping them. 16 stranded motorists, there's only one person there to help them. Or maybe there's 100 people stranded, only one to help them or a thousand, or several million, and only one person to help them. Maybe no one to help them. This morning we're going to talk about evangelism, and we're going to talk about missions, both. And uh, the reason we need to do this is, one, most of us aren't missionaries here. And uh, I'm going to try to argue that we really aren't... An, should not apply that label to ourselves. But I'm going to speak to us who are here as ministers, and I'll try to explain the difference in a bit. And I know that when we get together and we talk about, um, especially about evangelism, um, I've watched this over the years as I've preached, people start to kind of squirm a little, and we all feel guilty because we haven't shared the gospel recently, or um, when we did, uh, we made a mess of it, and so forth, and so on. And um, just so you know, I'm not one of those pastors that blasts you because you haven't shared the gospel recently or haven't shared it well because I struggle with the same, same thing. And I've become convinced over the years that the whole guilt thing is, is more often part of Satan's um, tool than God's. Um, God doesn't want us to simply wallow in where we haven't been or should have been. He wants us to step out and go where um, he desires for us to go. So I want to read these uh, 20 verses in Luke 10, the first 20 verses. 
And then I'm going to make some distinctions, uh, what I understand, distinctions between a minister and a missionary. And uh, just so you understand, I'm going to say some things today to missionaries. I'm going to say some things to those of us I consider ministers and uh, some things to us about sharing the gospel as well as us being partners with, um, with missionaries. Now, the fact of the matter is, just like that guy who's stranded in the water, there are a lot of people in the world that need Jesus. A lot of people. And God looks to us to be the repairer of that breach. Luke chapter 10, read the verses and then I'll pray. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit them. By the way, depending on the translation you're using, it might say 70, it might say 72. Um, good New Testament documents from the past uh, have both. Um, in other words, it's not, a, it's not an easy call. It doesn't really matter. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great. But the workers are few. And so pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, May God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you now. But if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. I assure you even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on judgment day. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. And elsewhere in the Gospels it says that Capernaum is going to become a dead city. And that's exactly what it is today. It's just a place to go see ruins. Then he said to the disciples, anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. Anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. And Father, for these minutes, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be loosened in our midst to take the word of God and speak to us, uh, not only corporately, but individually. 
in the unique ways that we need to hear from you. And we pray against the enemy that you would bind him today, that you would muzzle his influence and his effect on our minds and our hearts and our ears so that um, we are more effectively drawn into your desires rather than his. He desperately wants to silence every one of us. And we pray that you would instead silence him. And uh, Lord, guard us against this kind of guilt that lets us just simply dwell on our own shortcomings in the past when it comes to sharing the good news of Christ. For that is certainly of very little profit. Rather, have us think about today and tomorrow and next year and what it is we might do maybe a little bit differently, how we might make ourselves maybe a little bit more available, how we might open up conversations with people that we normally don't to lead perhaps down the road to this opportunity to share with them the most important person in our lives. We pray in that person's name. Amen. All right, why do I say that there's a difference between missionaries and the rest? First of all, just this text we read. If you go back to the previous chapter, you'll find at the beginning of chapter 9 that Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, not these 72 random people, his 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the rest, on a mission trip earlier, and he gave them the same instructions that he gave these 72 people. But it doesn't seem that after Jesus' ministry is done, or even as he continued on here before he came to the cross, that um, any really that, that there was nothing for them to do in the same way that these 12 had specific assignments. In other words, that these 72 probably only went on this short-term mission trip for maybe several weeks and then went back home and now their job is done. Whereas the 12 disciples who became the apostles, we see them fanning out all over the then known world after Jesus goes back to heaven and they become these first cross-cultural missionaries. That's all they do. That's their job. Now, the the Scripture does call us to do similar kinds of things as missionaries when it comes to sharing the gospel. But let's let's put it this way. A missionary, that term primarily is reserved for people who cross geographical boundaries, who cross cultural boundaries to take the gospel somewhere else. Oftentimes, they're also uh, crossing linguistic boundaries. They have to go to another language or uh, ethnic boundaries as well. That's not the case for us. Those people make many large choices to do what they do. You and I also make many choices, but they're much smaller ones to do what we do. They're crossing oceans. They're crossing um, um, country, nation, nation's borders. We're crossing over maybe from our porch to a neighbor's porch. We're crossing over from a Uh, one side of the restaurant where we're on a bar stool and there's nobody there to another spot where there is somebody where we might open up a conversation. And so we're still called to share the gospel, but we're not called to do it in the same way as the missionary. And I know it's customary for us to speak about ourselves as missionaries, but there, there are some fundamental problems that missiologists have been trying to point out for years when we do that. Um, Spurgeon is a guy that I agree with just about everything he said, taught, and believed. 
but he said that every Christian is a missionary or he or she is an imposter. Don't agree with that. All of us are ministers, but not all of us missionaries. Now, let me give you a very short, brief uh, lesson in Greek. The word for deacon, we have deacons here at Keystone. The word for deacon in the, uh, in the Greek New Testament is diakonos. Sounds just like deacon, doesn't it? But the, the word diak, uh, diakonos really only means, uh, in, its, in its generic sense, servant. It doesn't necessarily mean a specific church office. It is one who serves a master. And so um, it's been, I think, unfortunate over the years in some church circles where the word minister is reserved for people like me, people who preach, people who are paid by the church, when the word from the New Testament refers to all of us, because we all serve, if you're a Christian, all of us serve Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that's our call. So to speak of you as a minister, the Bible does that as well. You are a servant. Speak of me as a minister, the Bible does that as well. I am a servant as well. So when I say, if I say minister this morning, I'm talking about us sharing the gospel in our contexts, in our sphere of influences. If I say missionary, then I'm speaking about someone who's crossing the seas. Let me give you a couple of examples here from some uh, missionaries. Uh, Dr. Herbert Keene was one of the greatest missiologists in the last century. He actually taught at both of my uh, alma maters, Lancaster Bible College and Trinity Seminary. Actually died the year I went to Trinity. Um, he says the Chinese have a proverb, and he was a missionary in China uh, many years before uh, they went communist. The Chinese have a proverb, if two men feed a horse, it will lose weight. You have to think through that. This may make it clear. If two men keep a boat, it will soon leak. What is everybody's job is nobody's job. If every Christian is a missionary, missionary work is bound to suffer. He says that it is correct to say that every Christian is or should be a witness. It is not correct to say that every Christian is a missionary. Uh, this next one is Dr. Gordon Olson. He's still living, missiologist as well, uh, adjunct professor at Liberty. He says if every Christian is already considered a missionary. I think this is the best argument. If every Christian is already considered a missionary, then all can stay put where they are and nobody needs to get up and go anywhere to preach the gospel. But if our only concern is to witness where we are, how will people in unevangelized areas ever need to hear the gospel? And I have heard that from Christians again and again and again down through the years as we have so much work to do here. That's true. But Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? He says, first to Jerusalem and then Samaria and then Judea and then the rest of the world. And he didn't mean once you have everybody saved in Jerusalem and then go off. He meant that we're concurrently supposed to take all of those areas of respons responsibility to heart. All right, that's enough of the preliminary um, introduction stuff. Let's go to the text itself. And I want to talk first about this heavy harvest that Jesus says exists. Heavy harvest. He argues in verse 2 that the harvest is great, and he's talking about, about the how many people in the world need to hear about the kingdom of God. How many people are yet to be touched with this good news? Now, there is a call in here that I think applies both to missionaries and to ministers. And that is to go. He says, 
He says, go and remember I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. There is a call to relocate. You say, well, I thought you're saying missionaries, that's what they do and we stay here. What I'm saying about, what I mean by relocating is that if I'm sitting in my living room like I was last night watching uh, a, a video, I, I have nobody there to speak to about Jesus Christ. I have to go somewhere to talk to the people who are in need. Now, I might invite them into my home, but in general, I need to go to where the people are. I, I've shared before, um, last year, a Muslim family moved uh, near us, about a half a mile away, and Betty and I have been scratching our heads about how we can reach out to them, um, how we can build a relationship with them and share the, eventually share the gospel. And I still haven't figured it out. If we call, we'd find out a phone number, invite them to their, our home, I doubt that they would come. They don't know who we are. Uh, I'm a little uneasy about going to their home and how that all is going to work out and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, if I'm going to have any impact in their lives, I have to go to them. And so we as ministers, we may not go to Senegal, we may go to Strasbourg, we may not go to Liberia, we may go to Lancaster, we may not go to Angola, we go to Acklin. In other words, the communities in which we live in, we're not going as in moving somewhere else, but we need to get off the stool and off the sofa and out of the office chair to go where the people, is, uh, people are. You might be the person that eats lunch at your office, for example. Now there's a there's a lunchroom over here, but you eat lunch here in your office cubicle. You call your wife or your husband over lunch hour. You maybe read a book or you catch up on, uh, on the news on your computer. But maybe what God wants you to do is relocate your lunch place to the lunch room where people are. Maybe you're sitting on the bench. You're a backup on your school's team, and you always sit right here. And you have two friends on either side of you from your church who know the Lord. Maybe you need to relocate to the other end of the bench where somebody is who doesn't know Christ and, and cre create a relationship with that person. That's what I mean by relocate. The missionary has to relocate their home and everything. But the minister, by virtue of the calling of the people around us, we need to relocate and be ready to relocate as well. Sometimes it's going to be with, uh, with uh, ministry organizations. Uh, Ed Bear, one of our church members has worked for years at Lancaster County Prison. He goes from his uh, farm in Burdenhand to Lancaster County Prison to minister there. Uh, Ebeth Hoover here goes to the factory every week and, and ministers to the teenage girls there. We have a large contingent of people from Chester County and some of those folks go down to the Point Ministry down in Parksburg and minister to the, uh, to the teenage kids there. But whether you are involved with a, a ministry like that or you're simply trying to impact the people that you live near or that you work near or that you play sports with or go to school with, all of us have relocation as part of the call that Christ ha has for, for us. Now, look at verse 4, and I want to point something out there that it almost seems in, uh, uh, counterproductive. Jesus says to these People are going out on a short-term mission trip. At the end of the verse, he says, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Now, if I was teaching evangelism, uh, an evangelism class, and I would 
uh, talk about our comings and goings and uh, just the normal pattern of life, I would say be always alert and aware for opportunities that you might have to impact people for the, with the gospel. <laughs> and that would include walking down the road. Now, I think what Jesus is telling his, his, his uh, people here is you have a, you have a mission there. Okay, you're to go to this town, you're to go to this village, because we're going to be coming through there, and I want you to get the people ready. And that responsibility, that mission, is urgent for you to get there and get set up. Don't get waylaid by unnecessary things. The Jesus' point was not, we should never talk to people on the road. Jesus' point was, we, we have to know what matters most. We sang this song this morning about even so come, Lord Jesus, come. And I, I think, you know, we look back at the past 2,000 years, the early church, they thought that Jesus was going to come back like this. He's going to be back in a couple weeks, so everything else gets put on hold. I'm not even going to worry about my job right now because I don't need money for three years from now. I'm not going to worry about my job. I'm not going to worry about visiting here, and I'm not going to worry about this and that and the other thing because jesus is he's going to be back any day after a while people started to think maybe that's not the case years went by years went by decades centuries and now two millennia have gone by and we think hey it's gonna be a long time and do you realize we might be gone two months I look at my schedule, and when I try to book something, I look at my schedule, September, October, November, December, and I'm like, I don't even know how to cram in another meeting in my schedule because I'm booked. And we live like that, don't we? I've got this coming up next week, this coming next week, next month, on and on and on. We're planning for years ahead. I'm sure before, Betty and I are planning for a, a real special uh, vacation next May. Next May may never come. And Jesus says, what you are, what I'm calling you to is urgent. So urgent, don't get distracted on the way. There's a call to go. And there's a call to pray. Look at the second part of verse 2. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. There's not enough people to go around to share the gospel. And what does he say to do? At that point, he might have said, go recruit your family members and your friends. Instead, he says, pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. And I, I read that, and I'm like, this, this is Jesus who said this. Jesus the eternal Son of God who has always existed, has come into the world, who created everything, John 1 says. Why didn't he just go abracadabra and there's enough missionaries and enough ministers to go around? Why didn't he? Could he have? Sure. But if you, if you read the Scripture, really almost anywhere, you discover that God seems to have a habit of reaching out for human beings to do the work. 
I, I love the story in, uh, I think it's Exodus 17, where um, the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites, and God had told Moses to raise his staff, which he did. Now, Moses is, uh, what was he at that point? 80-some years old. He's 80 years old. I could, <laughs> I just get tired. An entire battle, he's supposed to hold his arms up and his staff up. And what happened, as his arms began to sag, he's a tired old man, begin to sag, and the battle changes. As long as he keeps his arms in the air, the Israelites are winning. And his arms start to go down, and they start losing. And he puts them back up, and they start winning again. So they finally figured out, let's put a rock under this old guy. They put a stone under him. He sits down, and then they put a guy on either side of him, one to hold up this arm and one to hold up this, this arm, and they finally won. Now, God could have made the battle go Israel's direction just like that. He could have annihilated the entire enemy, but he, he used, most, always uses, not always, but chooses to use human agency most of the time. Acts chapter 8, there's this Ethiopian, uh, Ethiopian diplomat who was a convert to Judaism, uh, going back to Ethiopia, had just been to Jerusalem to worship. And he's reading Isaiah 53, doesn't understand it, doesn't get it. And the Spirit whispers to Philip, go stand by that chariot and answer his questions. Why couldn't have God boom from heaven? This is what Isaiah 53 means. We could have. But he tends to use us as people. This is a reason why we tell you that it's not enough for you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to come to a place like this on Sunday morning and just listen and say, I, I was a spectator. N no, you're a participant. God's called you to do all kinds of things as well, just like Philip and just like Moses. So there is this call to us to pray for missionaries. God, this week in your prayer time, did you think once to pray that God would release missionaries? More missionaries? James says to the believers in James chapter 4, verse 2, he says, there are some things that you don't have from God because you never got around to asking him for. Now, for people like me that believe strongly in the sovereignty of God, that he is king and that he runs the show and he plans everything out before we ever get there, that can be a tough pill to swallow. But we have to take the Bible at its word even when there are certain things that seem to collide with each other. And one of them is that, yes, God is sovereign, and yet there are apparently some things that God has in his hands for us that we never receive because we never ask him for. Like enough missionaries. Two billion people in the world have never heard a credible, understandable presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two billion. For the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. I would love to see in the next 10 years 20 new missionaries raised up from Keystone Church. Individuals, couples, families to go to the 90% of the world where nobody is working 
90% of our missionaries are concentrated in, in 10% of the world where work is already established. And yet all of these people elsewhere, no gospel witness. In some cases, that's why I asked you to reverse the image of that CNN video in your mind. Some places there's 25 million people in a people group have never heard the gospel. Where are the missionaries for them? You do not have because you do not ask. Secondly, and this piece is for missionaries, which we don't have any this morning. We early, Earlier service, we had a missionary, uh, one of our missionaries to Japan was in the audience. Um, but we need to know this as well, that it is healthy for missionaries to ask for financial, your financial help. Now, over the years, I've had conversations with a lot of Christians who have sour tastes in their mouths about missionaries. And I get it. One guy used to tell me about a missionary he had supported for I don't know how long and then discovered that the man had a full-time job on the mission field. He was getting paid on the mission field as well as getting paid by his supporters. Now, it could have been, I, I didn't get a lot of details, but it could have been that that person was a tent maker and it's not unusual for tent makers to have to raise support as well because they have ministry expenses and so forth. But it could have been a legitimate complaint. Um, I had another man who was very frustrated. He said he actually heard a missionary say one time or describe his supporters as suckers uh, because they supported financially on the field. And the truth of the matter is missionaries are often thousands of miles away from accountability. And so they can get away with slacking. But hey, there are bad apples in every barrel. I remember when my uh, son Cameron was in the Army, he was in ba stationed in Bahrain at the time, and he called one night, and uh, he was a platoon leader there. And he said, Dad, he said, I can't wait to get out of the Army so I could get a normal job and work with people that take their jobs seriously that are all in, you know, and are, are industrious and all that. And I'm like, whoa, dude, I got news for you about civilian life. You're going to have a lot of those kind of folk around you in civilian life, too, that don't take it seriously, that are just getting by with what they can. The same is true of missionaries. I mean, these aren't perfect people. They're sinners saved by grace, just like the rest of us. But look at what, look at what Jesus says in verse 7. He has told them that they're to... Uh, give a blessing to this home where they go, and they're not to move around from place to place. They're to receive the food and the drink that is provided for them. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality. Why? Because those who work, and he's speaking about missionaries, those who work deserve their pay. And so I told Charles this morning, when you go re asking people for money, be bold. This is what you should do. You're a worker, and you're worth your pay as well, whether or not you punch a clock here or serve the purposes of advancing the gospel on the other side of the world. It's healthy to ask us ministers at home for support, and we should, as the people that are needed for them to stay on the field, we should respond with gladness. And let me just take this opportunity to pitch that, the idea one more time of each of us getting involved personally with one of the missionaries out in the corridor there, in the main corridor of our hall that has all the missionaries that we support on them. That you're involved not just by giving your money to the church to go to them, 
but to give money directly to them as well. You get on their mailing list, you get you find out their prayer needs and so forth, you get, get a relationship built with them. That's so vital, that's going to be beneficial for you, for your family, for them. And I can tell you, by the way, almost all of the missionaries that we support are under-supported. In other words, the money that they, their mission board tells them that they need in order to stay on the field, in most cases, they don't have it. And then there's the ebb and flow of supporters. Supporters die off, supporters drop support, and so forth. So there's always opportunity for you to be a blessing to them. It's healthy for missionaries to ask for financial help. Now, the last point. Oh, I'm way over time. Uh, I want to talk about being happily rejected. <laughs> now, those are two words you don't usually put together. Um, if you're dating a girl and she calls you up one night and says, um, we're done, you don't think, so that's awesome. Uh, rejection doesn't feel good ever. And that's true when we share the gospel. That doesn't feel good either. Somebody says, well, it's okay for you, but I'm not really into religion. Or, more likely, I can't believe you're an intelligent person and you really believe this kind of stuff. In other words, the ridicule is the really hurtful part of the rejection. And yet, Jesus says, this is normal. He says in verse 3, I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. I mean, th th this is not the picture on Isaiah. When Jesus comes back, sets up an earthly reign here, and, uh, and it says that the, the, lamb, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. No, this is still when predator and prey have an adversarial relationship. I'm sending you out as food, Jesus says, essentially. Now, th part of the reason I think we don't have a happily rejected um, mentality is because as American Christians, we really don't have a great doctrine of suffering. And yet Jesus never sugarcoated any of this. He told these guys, this is what you can expect. You're going to be lunch meat for some people. Sending you out as lambs among wolves. Now, I think this is one of three key, there's other reasons, one of three key reasons why many of us don't share the gospel. Much, if at all. One of them is, I've discovered over the years, is that some Christians think that's my job. That's Pastor Brandon's job, Pastor Charlie's, Pastor Kyle. Who, whoever is being paid by the church, that's your job. You're the professionals. You're the specialists. No, 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 no. The fact that Jesus says, gave the Great Commission to his 12 disciples was not just for them, right? If it would have been, that meant that the Great Commission call dies out with that generation. He meant it not only for those 12, but for all who would follow them, and not just for the professionals. Always be, uh, always be ready, Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within it, ready at a moment's notice. The second, I think the second reason, um, and they, maybe this moves to the head of the line for some of us, is we simply don't have time. I told you about my schedule. Yours probably looks like that as well. It, we're packed. And we don't even, 
I, I find the greatest challenge to me is just even noticing the opportunities that God presents me to speak to other people about Jesus. Because my schedule is the thing that I'm noticing most. I have to be here by this time, and I have to get here by this time, and I have to do this, oh, that's right, and I have to do that tomorrow. Uh, this, this crazy schedule preoccupies my, my mind so that I'm not even attentive to the moment-by-moment creation of opportunities that God is giving me. But I think the last key reason is we simply don't want to face the prospect that people will be turned off by what we have to say and they're going to reject us maybe as a friend or, or think ill of us or worse. Betty and I watched uh, God is Not Dead 2 last night, the video. And uh, I thought it was really good. I liked it better than, than the first one. It was more realistic. But this idea that the world, let's back up, America is becoming less and less um, supportive of Christians. Means, and, and you, you know that's true. That means that we have we had better adopt an idea and an understanding that we are going to be marginalized, not that it's a possibility. That we are going to be rejected, not that it's just a possibility. And Jesus said, I mean, Jesus was very clear on this would be uh, the norm for followers of his. In John chapter 15, verses 18, uh, 17 and 18, sorry, 18 and 19, he said, the world hated me first, and so that's what you can expect. <laughs> In other words, if you're going to follow me, you shouldn't expect to be treated somehow differently than, than I was. They, you know, he, they killed Jesus, right? They killed him. And uh, let me take you to Acts chapter 5, and then I need to wrap up. Acts chapter 5. This is where the apostles, the early apostles, not long after Jesus went back to heaven, they got in trouble with the Sanhedrin, with the Jewish uh, leaders. They'd put, been put in prison, they were flogged, and they were told not to speak about Jesus anymore. And they go back to their friends, and verse 41, this is what it says. The apostles left the high council rejoicing. <laughs> There's the happily part of happily rejected rejoicing in what that god had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of jesus now listen if you are going to use your love for lost people as your motivation to share the gospel here's what here's what i will promise you it's not sustainable it's not sustainable you have the best of intentions, I have the best of intentions, but so many of these lost people aren't people we know. On the other hand, if you let your love for the gospel, which by God's grace you should always be nourishing through the word, through the people of God, through the spirit of God, if your love for the gospel is constantly being um, nourished, that's your motivation. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm sorry, I am way over time, but I can't miss this. Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, 
guys that would have been in the evangelical camp years ago, leaders of movements and so forth. I've watched them and others as they have thrown classic biblical doctrines by the wayside. And I believe with all my heart, at least those two guys and others as well, I think Tony Campolo is probably in that category as well, that these guys love lost people. And they loved lost people so much that they wanted to make Christianity more palatable to lost people. And so out goes hell. Somebody that can't understand, who's not a believer, can't understand how a so-called loving God could uh, indict people and send them to eternal hell. Now suddenly told, oh, there is no hell. Oh, well, he's okay now. Some unbeliever who can't understand for the life of them why two men or two women who just want to love each other for all their lives can't be acceptable to God in that relationship if they're now told, oh, God really doesn't care about that. That's okay. Man, woman, woman, man. Man, man, woman, woman. God really doesn't have any strong feelings on that. They go, oh, that's, that's enlightened of him. I... I like that kind of God, and we could go on and on. And I really believe that some of these leaders, their great passion is lost people. I believe that. The problem is when you get the cart before the horse, you have a fundamental problem. And that's why Jesus said to these men, when they came back from their short-term mission trip, and these men told him, We can't believe it. Even demons got cast out when we used your name. And Jesus said to them, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in that your name is written in heaven. In other words, don't rejoice in all the other stuff that comes out of the gospel. Rejoice in the gospel that has saved you. Rejoice in what I'm doing for you. Should you love lost people? Yes. But that's the cart, not the horse. Love the Savior who saved you and who wants to save them and keep that love first in your heart. And you will be a blessing to those people who still need Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we haven't done it all well we have to confess over the years or months or whatever we've been a a follower of yours and my guess is all of us could contribute dozens and maybe even hundreds of times where we look back and say man I I failed to say anything about Jesus and the, the conversation was ripe for that or I was uncomfortable with that person because they're not a Christian and they do things that I don't really feel comfortable about and they talk in ways I don't really feel comfortable listening to. And yet we may, as, may have missed great opportunities to speak for our Savior. That's water over the dam. And so my prayer would be for me, for my brothers and sisters, that today, tomorrow, this week, this month, what's left of this year. Each new day remind me that I am placed here not just to make money, 
not just to advance in my career ladder, not just to pass a course, not just to win state championships, not just to get accepted into a particular college, and that you have me here, you have us here who know Christ to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ until he comes back. And that the urgency of that mission eclipses any other missions that we think we have. Because in it, we speak of things that not only matter for a few months or weeks or even years, but for all eternity. I pray in Jesus' name.